Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Three men walk into a Zoom meeting. I'm one of them, Fred Reed, and later in our conversation, Steve Cavallari. We three men have been meeting on Zoom and before that by telephone for many years. Every Wednesday night, touch and base, how's the week, what's heading up, what's coming, all of that that friends do. But we also talk about our ideas, about writing, about learning, about teaching, about programming. It's a wonderful mix that we have that somewhat resembles what I think many practitioners have when they have a lot in common, including a friendship. So listen in on this conversation. And if if you like it, let me know and we'll record a few more. This is three men having a conversation about writing and other things. Folks, I'm with Fred Reed, who I've known for over 20 years now. Fred, is it at least 20 years since we... Yeah, I think the book was 96, so that probably makes it 25. 25 years. uh, Managing Organizations That Learn. I guess we should put a question mark on the title of that book. (laughs) (laughs) But that was was our, uh, our desire, if you will, when Steve Cavallari uh, invited you and I uh, helped co-edit and write chapters. It was quite an undertaking. Back then, uh, it was also part of the job, if you will, for me and Steve, because we were both professors. And for you, it wasn't the job, but it's something you put a lot into anyway. So that kind of opens up a question I thought we could talk about in terms of practice. Back then, when we first met, our result that we were working to achieve was print on page that would be influential to the reader to the extent that they would maybe explore the question mark. Can we manage organizations so that they learn? And then later, those other collaborations that you and Steve did in particular, right up to our, our Wednesday night calls, which we've had very consistently for a long time, and I've loved it. And Invariably, we come back to writing, putting thoughts out there. So, Fred, um, am I projecting on you my own quirky need to to write or at least express myself like what I am doing with this podcast? Uh, Maybe a little bit. Yeah. I I suspect that we probably have... uh, different motivators, uh, a lot of them overlap and some of them not so much. So Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about, uh, you know, the context of the the book uh, from 96, Managing an Organizations That Learn, and, you know, what my motivation was at the time. And, you know, being a a business person, as you recall, we had just started uh, this new company called Autonomics Corporation. And, um, you know, I was looking for any chance I could get to to get the word out. You know, I I don't want to make it sound like a purely uh, financial thing, but marketing, right? You know, I, I thought that if a lot of people read your book, uh, and got to this chapter and said, hey, you know, this Fred Reed guy's got some deep insights. I wonder what he's doing nowadays. And they would look that up and, oh, it's Autonomics Corporation. Maybe I should invest some money in them or something. And, so, and, and what's an autonomic? Well, I did invest money in right. <laughs> Yeah, so I think it was a grand sum of $100, but, but I get it. And I think that if, you, if we were to extrapolate that to a whole lot of books that are out there, mm-hmm. uh, they a lot of them are written, particularly in the self-published domain, because they want people to recognize that their thoughts and their thought process, and see if there's a if they are interested enough to look at who the author is, look about the author, and then contact the author. And in fact, of the last four or five podcasts, by coincidence, it's been true about each person I've talked with that they've uh, been in that part of getting writing done for particularly helping their business. And it seems to be working. (laughs) Well, you know, and the funny thing is, is that, uh, 
you know, I, I perhaps at the time I thought, oh, yeah, here are these ivory tower, you know, mm-hmm. academics and they want to write this book for their reasons. And I have my reasons. But, uh, you know, a real eye opener for me uh, was something, again, that involved you and Steve was attending the uh, the Academy of Management meeting, um, the Eastern Academy at Philly, where we did the three men walk into the bar uh, mm-hmm. uh, episode. And I remember being there and there was a uh, like a seminar or a track or something at the conference was on how new academics, you know, newly minted PhD slash professors uh, should develop their brand. And it, it never yeah. occurred to me that, yeah. that professors did branding, you know, um, and uh, I think nowadays you see that everywhere. You know, whether they're artists or academics or moms or students or whatever, everyone, everyone's encouraged to use social media for branding, you know, go get the the domain name, you know, for your name and and immediately start getting, you know, a a set of materials out into the Ethernet, you know, that uh, that basically supports your brand. So I think when we did the Eastern thing, it was a little early for that. It was probably before, uh, you know, people were really Facebooking and so forth much. Oh yeah. No, it was Um, earlier 2000s. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so I think most writers at this point, um, whether they're academics or commercial or entrepreneurs or whatever, a lot, you know, at least in the ex- extrinsic sense, are writing to enhance the brand. Yeah, you know, they they want to get a better job out of it. They want to be able to sell their products. They you know whatever they want to get out of it, find a better life partner, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, uh, you know it's it's a brand. We used to say, uh, "Make a name for yourself." Remember that phrase? You, you're you're, yep. you're a little younger than I am, but uh, those are the kind of phrases that your parents and, and mine would use. Hey, go out and make a name for yourself. Yep. Well, well how do you do that? Well, don't become notorious. <laughs> you don't want to be the headline in the Sunday paper. Uh, but I think that is part of, uh, uh, and it's a genuine reason to, to write. Think of our mutual friend, Sharon, who's written a number of books. And in particular, because it's, it's ultimately to support a business around her, the work. She makes a name for herself and we can go right down the list of people we know. I think though, I think there's a different kind of motive uh, in me and you. And if Steve were here, I'd say the same for him because we don't have to anymore. I mean, right. there's no institution saying, uh, that resume is looking a little skinny or, Hey, you know, the cash isn't coming in on the, on the autonomics business, uh, get out there and write some more yet. You know, Steve has just finished a book with Dave Freeman and I'm finishing the book that Peter started and you and have been cajoled by us right. <laughs> to, to, to write because you're a wonderful writer and have thoughts, thoughts that are not, you know, commonplace. Uh, so where are you as a, as, as Fred Reed, who doesn't need a brand, you deserve one, but you don't need one in regard to the writing process. Well, that's why I distinguished, uh, you know, sort of the different dimensions of extrinsic motivations, uh, for, um, uh, for writing, but similar to something we talked about not too long ago, uh, as I was reading that book on um, writing as practice. Yes, and you know there uh, the you know the exercises were real work in the sense that they encouraged you to write about something that you cared about, mm-hmm. as opposed to just simply a throwaway writing exercise. Mm-hmm. But they weren't to you know write a brand. They weren't to publish anything. It was writing as a means of inquiry, organizing one's thoughts. And if you're partnering with a writer, you know, if it's a collaboration, then it's, you know, working in a thinking in a social way, 
Yeah. And I was thinking about the, uh, uh, you know, your mention of the, the 96 book, uh, you know, one of the most valuable exercises in that was working with Sharon on the chapter that we co-authored mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it forced me to consider things that, you know, I hadn't really thought about and she questioned mm-hmm. or that she had insights that for some reason I couldn't ex- directly extrapolate mm-hmm. or interpolate uh, from my thinking. And I'd think, well, where the heck did this come from? How, how do I integrate this in with my supposedly, you know, closed system of thoughts. Uh, yeah, it's clearly- my stuff. It's pure. You yes. can't adulterate it. But the, we threw quite a few, uh, it was quite a few chapters in, in this uh, compendium that we wrote. And we threw together some people who had not really ever known each other. You, you didn't know Sharon before. Uh, no, I didn't. So, and you've known her for 25, sure, 25 yeah. years since and, and, and helped her with her work and done some work uh, with her company. So, uh, so I, I like, I like the idea that you just spoke to Fred about uh, writing to know what you know, in a sense, organizing yourself and, and, and clarifying your thoughts. My question then is why is that important? To me, it is. Why is it important to you? It, it's, it's again, we, we're basically retired. We could go out and sit on a bench, feed the pigeons. Uh, well, so um, uh, I'll, I'll bring a little purse into this. Some, some okay. Charles Purse philosophy. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in his mind, uh, doubt or lack of belief uh, and and fixing that state was an organic biologically biological motivation the necessity. That, you know, it actually hurts to be in a state of doubt and that uh-huh. you know you'll do what you have to do to get yourself out of that state mm-hmm. um, and I think you know certainly uh, you know, there's very simple life circumstances where maybe, you know, you see a shadow when you're walking down the, the street in the, in the alleyway, and you don't know if it's, you know, just a bird flying overhead or somebody about to rob you or, yeah. you know, a, an escaped animal from the, uh, from the zoo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, resolving that doubt as to what, you know, is there would have an immediate sort of biological motivation to it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think, you know, where you and I and Steve share with obviously very many other people is that at least a significant part of our identity is that we are men of ideas. All right. I'll buy that. I think I'll I'll take that. that. We have ideas that are worth uh, having and uh, worth sharing and worth further developing and so forth. So in a lot of cases, I think, uh, you know, where I would be compelled to do some writing and uh, oddly enough, you know, I, in my case, uh, writing can either be in English natural language or it can be in computer programming. That's right. Exactly. I'll I'll often, you know, think, you know, I just don't understand what's going on here. Um, I've got to write a, a program because that'll force me to deal with any of the missing pieces or whatever it is, or it'll prove that my idea was good or that it's bad. You know, once I run the program, if it doesn't do what I expected it to do, then I can throw that idea out. Or if it works as I expect it to, then that confirms the idea. So uh, I think writing, particularly when you get, uh, you know, when you have an audience that can come back and say, Yes, that all makes sense. You know, you've you've laid out a very convincing argument mm-hmm. for your thought. Um, then it would seem that that's kind of the pragmatic test of the writing mm-hmm. uh, and the and the thought that went into it is being able to develop a, a convincing argument and put it into words. I hadn't thought of uh, writing a program as writing. Now I do, of course but also as a way of proving the, the quality of a, of a thought or, or set of linked thoughts. 
by seeing if you can lay them out in, 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 in such a way that they enact a process and there's a desired outcome. Funny in my head, I, I think writers sit at computers and put down words when you, you've done is some very elegant programming as, soft, as a software engineer and creative person with the autonome. The autonome. Uh, and is that just another way for you to know what you know <laughs> and get an audience and maybe make make a little bit of money <laughs> as a result? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I, you probably don't have much interaction with these sorts of people. <laughs> no, I don't. So there's a whole community of, say, computer science researchers out there that are constantly doing this. So, you know, and it, it's the... Uh, it's been the bread and butter of artificial intelligence, certainly, yeah. Um, yeah. for decades. Yeah. You know, it's funny, if you go back 40, 50 years, what people are calling artificial intelligence is now just plain vanilla computer programming. <laughs> it's like the old Pong game. Remember? Yeah, so, so AI <laughs> has always been sort of uh, not very clearly defined as just simply building programs to do things that we don't know quite how to make them do it yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's an experimental thing. So you have some yeah. idea that says, oh, I think human memory works this way, or cognition uses this sort of logic, or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, in our mind, we represent things like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can do all kinds of non-programming research around that. But if you want to convince yourself that your idea about mind and logic and thinking and so forth has some value, uh, you write a computer program and to another programmer, that program can be as convincing as a well laid out argument in text. You know, uh, you, you again, I've never thought algorithm. of a, a program as an argument, but it, You're right. it, it is a convincing yeah. argument. Let me, uh, I'm going to pause a second and I want to come back to this, but we'll, we'll weave Steve into it once I let him in. So I'm going to pause and pause recording. You might have heard Fred mention just a few moments ago, three men walk into a bar, a, a, a program that three men who are now on screen wrote up uh, for the Eastern Academy Management meeting uh, back in the day. We use the three men because we wanted to present three different uh, perspectives on management and, and organizational effectiveness. And so we had fun with that. But one, one man was Fred. And Fred, do you remember your original character when we were playing that uh, silly role that we, we exhibited there? Uh, no, but I think it was a, just a play on our middle names or something. Yeah, but I think I was the stuffy uh, re resistant yes. senior faculty member uh, whose name was uh, Spencer. And Steve was sort of the uh, iconoclast yes. uh, within, within the little world of professorships. He was a, he was a, a bit of a rebel. And Fred, I think you were, um, you were too smart for your own good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, maybe I'll fill it was Fred, what's <laughs> it was we used our middle names. Yeah. I'm Spencer. Alan. Spencer, yeah. Yep. And you were Alan, yeah. Yeah. So it, it was some play on my middle name, William. Uh, but yeah. uh, you know, I think the role was not too far off from my real one, which is, you know, I don't know anything about the, what's taught in colleges around, you know organizational behavior or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, I was just trying to translate concepts from my more developed areas of expertise, like artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. uh, and say, well, you know, if we're trying to make companies smart and uh, I'm trying to make computers smart, then maybe we have something in common. You know? And Steve and I were essentially trying to make students smart. So we're, we're all in the smart business. Steve, just before you joined us, uh, Fred uh, expressed the notion that one thing that I've underwritten, if you will, are 
our weekly conversations is that we we are men of ideas. Uh, we have ideas. We like having ideas. We like to talk about them with each other. But further, we feel confident enough in those ideas that we would set them <laughs> down on paper uh, and put them out there for people to experience, to read, to, to get something out of it. Uh, is it. Do you buy into that notion, too, that you're a man of ideas? I, I think you are, but you can, you can deny it if you wish. <laughs> No, I, I subscribe. <laughs> I subscribe to the idea. And I think, you know, if I look at my former position at the university in a, a broader perspective of being teacher, researcher, uh, and so on, I found that I love teaching uh, researcher in the conventional sense, I found to be very boring in terms of the, uh, I'll call it the, since this is on tape, I'll refer to it as the Academy of Management model. And, <laughs> uh, yes, I agree with it. I know. Yeah. And I found that the writing and creative aspect of it was very enjoyable and satisfying. Even if I didn't know how many people would be paying attention to what I or we had to say, but the process was enjoyable. I enjoyed collaborating with both of you guys, and then uh, being part of something greater than just what I had to say and generating something new. Um, I think the profession sorely lacks that, yeah. that spirit of creating something new. I think some, so many people that I knew in the profession felt very satisfied with themselves that they had cranked out another study that took a well-worn idea and spun it from another direction with different set of formulas and mathematics. Mm -hmm. And they felt like that was a major contribution. And maybe it was, I just didn't see it. I think the three of us, uh, even though we were fooling a moment ago about our, our role play, I think that was one way that we were trying to say to this, uh, this subset of the Academy of Management, hey, how about some different ways of thinking and how about doing them differently together when we're at conference rather than, you know, the old standard was stand up there and you have your PowerPoint slides, you read your paper. We used to have a, a discussant who would then rip you apart in front of everyone. It was well, we all, awful, well, we all, awful. We wore our blue blazers and khaki pants and yes. white shirt and red tie. Red tie. That was, we had a, but, and so we were a bit of rabble arousing um, in that sense. But I think we were doing it for a purpose. I think we we're hoping our colleagues, on behalf of the students that would want to really be really moved as learners, to break out of some of that and try something new. Now, what Fred brought in when we first met him for the managing organization at Learnbook was he, he brought in just what he was saying a moment ago. He he and I. Uh, came upon the idea that when he sits down to write a program, it's similar to writing an article or an argument. The program requires a lot more uh, linking to get everything, you know, to, to pan out the way you want, but it's, it's a different kind of writing. But Fred would bring that into our collaboration, that the ability to see things <laughs> in, as a, uh, a software program for artificial intelligence. And then I like, to tell stories. So I brought that piece in. And Steve, you have almost a natural way of feeling about philosophy without calling it that. You're a philosophical thinker. And so and you're you have had Congress with quite a few very smart people who take things at the very basic, like if your time up at MIT, where where they trying to suss out what the hell <laughs> makes the world do what it does uh, in systems dynamics. So, yeah, we're crazy guys. <laughs> that was also true at KMCI. Uh, Joe and Mark were both very philosophical, and I gravitate to that. And uh, there were some very important decisions we made. The industry in knowledge management didn't like that idea of incorporating philosophical ideas. They wanted 
a lot of techniques and there were quite a few people who made a lot of money by um, being proponents of techniques that had very little philosophical grounding. And I think the business community at the time was telling us, we don't care about whether it has philosophical grounding or not. Just show us the techniques. <laughs> well, I, Dave, one thing you just said uh, kind of just sparked a, a train of thought here was, um, uh, you know, how much do you know what you're going to write when you start writing? And uh, I think in many cases, when I write, I really don't know how, how it's going to turn out or what's going to go into it. You know, it's more like, okay, I want to write about some topic that I'm not really clear on. And the, the process of writing helps me get some clarity. Yeah. But, uh, you know, two different kinds of writing that I can think of, uh, one which you would be familiar with and another one that maybe I'm more familiar with, uh, are, are completely different. And I, I'm, I know in my case, I, I failed pretty miserably at it. <laughs> so um, in my previous job, I, I had to write a lot of proposals. Mm. Uh, to government sponsors. Mm. And there, you don't want to sit down with a blank piece of paper and, in, and inquire, you know, particularly because it's under a deadline. You know, you're often, yeah. and, to, you know, you have to deliver this proposal in a few weeks or a month or something. And so the idea is, is that, you know, you, you go through a process of basically working out, you know, the, what we call the, the technical approach. And you try to work that out in as much detail as you possibly can before you even put pen to paper so that the, the process of writing the proposal is simply documenting and making the argument as good as you can to impress a, a sponsor or a, a proposal evaluator. Mm -hmm. um, that your technical approach is sound and you know mm -hmm. has value and so forth mm -hmm. um and i never quite got that uh i would often sit down and just start writing and write you know and there'd be like a five page you know limit on this section of the proposal and i'd <laughs> a day or two later i'd have 25 pages and i think oh my god what am i gonna do now <laughs> you definitely were a misfit <laughs> i gotta chop it down um, and I would think that writing a journal article uh, is is much the same way. You know, you you conduct the research, mm -hmm. and hopefully, you know, you've laid you've already done your experimental design. You've mm -hmm. you know laid out the approach that you're going to use, your data collection methods, you know, your analysis methods, and everything else. And in writing the report, you know, I, I used to be a chemist, so, or at least a chemistry major. So yeah. I know how to write a, you know, a, a uh, lab report. A lab report, yeah. And a lab report was not deep thinking. It was, you know, step-by-step, uh, yeah. step, you know, this is what I did and these are the conclusions I came to and so forth. So I think particularly in what Steve's calling the, uh, the academy model, mm -hmm. uh, that's probably what a lot of people do. Exactly. I agree with Fred. And I think uh, a lot of it was the people in the, uh, I'll say, following the academy model essentially would take well-established methodologies that they had read about in the academy of management journals or related journals, and then they would somehow add some other dimension to it and then retest it to see if it works the same or if it produces different effects. And oftentimes, it's just a very minor adjustment to the existing literature, and they feel like, well, this is the scientific method. If we're adding something to it and trying it again and seeing it's going to work the same way. And to me, it was not a very good uh, example of the scientific method at work. It was kind of a convenient industrialized version of this scientific method that didn't require a lot of heavy thinking. And so, uh, as Fred indicated with the chemistry lab reports, it was very a very mechanical process that uh, maybe for a lot of people that was as deep as they wanted to go. They didn't really want to be 
uh, more immersed in the fundamental assumptions of their craft or their field. So, you know, maybe for a lot of people that was a good thing, but it just wasn't right for me. Well, the three of us have, have that in common. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we have a, a, a real interest in, I think we have a real interest in learning. That's one thing that's tied us together. And uh, the kind of learning that's uh, out there, you know, flapping its wings in, in the real world, in real currents of air, and, and having to constantly adapt and adjust to keep oneself uh, from crashing. And so I'm stressing that a little bit because I think if you look at the world right now, which is right on the verge of some pretty bad stuff, uh, the, the on, onus on the person to learn their way forward in the midst of, of all these uncertainties is they can't count on the, the memorized knowledge or the knowledge on the shelf uh, to help guide them. So we've wanted them to understand systems. We wanted to understand the scientific method as <laughs> not a method, but the, the way that the person, others uh, taught us. Fred was talking earlier when you, before you came on, Steve, about how doubt <laughs> plays a huge role in uh, what person in the early uh, pragmatists said about learning. Don't run from it. If you're in a state of doubt, it's good news in a way. Now you got a chance to learn. Now today, with the world as it is, there's hardly a moment where you're not thrown into doubt, into a state of doubt. Now, what have we done as, as educators to prepare people for that? We did okay. But we were also in a, in a, in a business school setting where we had a lot of constraints on what we could teach, when we could teach it, and how much time we had per, per class. So it was a tough, it was a tough haul to get to help find ways to elevate these kids, get them up to a point where they can be more self-sufficient learners. And Fred, you, uh, one of the reasons I think we first met you is you had a strong interest in that sort of um, extramural learning. Isn't that, is that true? That was I've the, always been like that. <laughs> you no, know, you, you, you write about learning, you study learning. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, it was just always kind of a, a hobby, I guess. I don't know. I think that was through our connection with Fred uh, to the book, you know, managing in organizations that learn, I think he gravitated to that originally. And then, uh, as you know, Fred and I first connected on the internet, on the organizational learning discussion list. Yep. I think we were two of the pioneers of that list. Yep. And we were both interested in that, that particular kind of learning that seemed to be endemic to that list, which was, Fred, if I recall, that most of it played off of Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline, and the kind of arduous model that Senge inherited in that book and discussed very often. And so I guess you could make the argument that through arduous, arduous was kind of a, I will call him a backdoor pragmatist mm -hmm. in that he he had worked ex extensively with Don Schoen at, uh, up at MIT and Harvard and um, really learned from Schoen about the tenets of pragmatism. So I think mm -hmm. if you follow the lineage of how we came to be in that same place at that same time, I think that was the connection, was Senge and Argyris and Schoen and that yeah. group of characters. I think the lists serve... Uh may have been instigated as an initially a discussion list for uh, Sengi's book. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's what we had in common. Uh, um, now, this is this is obviously going back a long time. Uh, so I, I may have this partly or mostly wrong. But my my recollection of being sort of thrown head first into a discussion list of some area that I really knew nothing about. I mean, I, I was just, I was a military analyst, you know, I 
I designed <laughs> things for submarines. I, why I should think I should. What am I doing here with these people? I, why I should know anything about organizational learning was was kind of beyond me. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, my, my, my sort of retrospective look at this was is that because organizational learning was kind of a novel thing, you know, the yes until that point, you know, organizations were supposed to be well-oiled machines. You know, Absolutely. they weren't supposed yeah. to change <laughs> and evolve. You yeah. know, that was bad. You know, if you could get it down to doubt-free, yeah, it? doubt-free, <laughs> you know, insulated from all mm-hmm. of the the vagaries that could cause the well-oiled machine to choke, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that was kind of it. You wanted to isolate it. You know, you wanted to make sure all your suppliers supplied exactly the same thing with the same mm-hmm. tolerances. That, you know, so that whatever the well-oiled machine was taking in and producing, it 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 wasn't going to have to change because it was insulated from everything. Yeah. Um, and then you know, with Sengi's book and and really kind of highlighting the earlier work, like Steve said, of Ardris and other people, you know, it was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So, you know, and I I don't mean to demean anybody, but you know, my my impression was is that you had these uh, management professors that suddenly were trying to become experts in learning. Yeah, and yeah, they yeah. were applying concepts of learning that you know uh were sort of the first things that came to mind right you know or what they the first things that they found when they did a because they didn't probably have a google search back then they you know they would have looked up in one of their old college textbooks you know a theory of learning or something or the psych course that you took yeah a psych course that they may have taken um and one of the things that they came up with was called the learning ladder do you remember that steve oh yeah yeah i do Okay. Well, it was the ladder of inference. Uh, oh, was that what, okay? The ladder of inference, and I remember looking that somebody posted it on that list serve, and it just had—I I don't know why—it just got me incensed. I, you know, because people were taking it as as the word of God or something. You know, this is <laughs> this is how inference works, and this yeah. is how a learning organization will produce. You know, perform inference. Sure, that's how I it was presented. I said, "This is." This is crap. You know, this is stuff that the AI people dispensed with 20 years ago. There was a, there was a famous um, article in the AI world called The First 30 Things, or The First 30 Ways We Think Thought Happens Are Going to Be Wrong. You know, you, you have to go through eliminating all the obvious but wrong solutions before yeah. you come up with something closer to the truth. And it seemed like the management people that were trying to theorize about learning were only about one or two steps into the first 30 things that were going to be wrong about learning. And this ladder of inference was clearly, in my mind, one of those because, uh, you know, uh, the the world that I was in had already kind of dispensed with that as as not being a viable model. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got pulled into that list was that I thought, hey, you know, maybe I can inject, you know, some other approaches into this, uh, maybe just to cast doubt, um, you know, if for no other reason to to force people to think, oh, maybe we're not so sure about this ladder of inference. Uh, yeah. We maybe shouldn't, you know, just make assumptions based on it or something. So you see, I, I we... think that's how I got pulled into it. If we were all um, just about thinking with, uh, for the thinking sake, writing for writing's sake, having the, having those arguments and and so forth for for uh, other purposes, then providing something to people who are going to do something with what we gave them or what they what they acquired with us. And see, that's the part that always got to me. Uh, we had an obligation to those we call them kids to help them think differently, see things differently, because we knew that business and this gets to your book, Steve, we knew that business barely ever stayed the same for 20 minutes, even back when it wasn't as much turbulence as there is now. And we were going to send them into a well-oiled machine, the way those books were laid out. 
this is you just follow these steps right down the it, it best it provided them something to be good in accounting but even accounting was changing when we were pushing down you know remember this remember this so while we had these great conversations and different lists and meeting with you and it was very satisfying to feel that we're into something new particularly when it came to learning and uh at the same time we had to go back and face these these kids and look at their futures and that's where sort of i got into the thing and why peter was such an influence for me because he had some of the same uh, uh angst if you will about the field so he in he, fact he he roamed many fields to, to get his thought together everything from philosophy all the way out to hard science because he he felt that the complexities that he was helping us be prepared for were beyond almost any one way of looking at the world by far so we're kind of uh wild and crazy guys i guess steve talk because i don't want to i can't record much longer than listeners will listen but and we'll do this another time too but you and and dave freeman just into retirement ready to pick up the fishing pole and go down to the creek. And the next thing you're telling Fred and me on a Wednesday night call is, oh yeah, well, we're working on a book. <laughs> how come? <laughs> and it's done, so let's give it a plug. But how come you had that motive? You and David, he, you, you both could have easily done anything, well, but the arduous difficulty of writing that book. Yeah, it was difficult, but uh, just from a, uh, Point of view of sitting at the computer for so many hours uh, day after day, but the probably the main reasons were uh, I felt like uh, I wanted to con still wanted to contribute something to the profession, and I didn't know what I had to offer. And I thought I was kind of reflecting on my recently completed career at the university, and one of the things that uh, I considered to be a greatest success was the collaboration with David Freeman in teaching strategic management, in particular, the way we handled the integrative aspects of strategic management with integrating yeah. the different business functions, yeah. uh, accounting, finance, and we would use our, our main means of doing that was through computer simulation. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of lessons learned from that experience that I thought could be incorporated into a book. And then as I got into it, kind of building on Fred's explanation, I don't think I ever fully understood where the book was going uh, in terms of the underlying theme, other than to kind of present what I knew. But then as I got into it more deeply, I think the most critical aspect of it was the whole field of strategic management is based on a mechanical external view of the manager or leader as operator on some substrate. And I'm thinking that makes no sense to me whatsoever because that leads to a lot of error where people are actually inducing uncertainty and problems into a company because they're not aware of their own uh, mental models or their own uh, internal parameters. And so I tried to write a book with David's assistance that would try to uh, transform strategic management primarily and integrative aspects of business into an internal process rather than a completely external one. And that's that's a big that's a big, a big chunk to think of a, a thing to go after. And I'm not sure whether we really got it. I guess we'll have to uh, wait till we hear feedback from uh, people who read the book, but that was where it was, we were trying to go. And I felt like that was a really uh, important tack to take, especially going back, uh, looking at Argyris. And then certainly I, I, want to mention uh, Russ Acoff, C. West Churchman, mm -hmm. Kolb. Uh, there are a number of people in the management profession who were trying to dabble in that stuff, but they didn't go 
too heavily into it because I think they feared that they would be ostracized or that people just didn't want to go that deeply into it. So that's that's kind of the direction that I wanted to take. And hopefully there's enough in there about learning and knowledge and pragmatism and so on that would make people at least pause and think about what they're doing. Name of the book. Better Business Acumen. Uh, subtitle is A Guide to Building Corporate Savvy. Very good. Very good. It's starting to sound like a David Letterman. Uh, <laughs> I, love, I, I, I love that word, savvy. I hate to pitch his book. And what's the name of that? Show us the cover. <laughs> Hold it up. Yeah. <laughs> no, Steve, I've known you as long as I have, a long while. I, I know that you have that uh, motive in you, and it would have been very hard for you to put a cap <laughs> on your capstone teaching, put a cap on your, on your long career. And just as much as we fool each other a bit, Oh, I'm going to sit on a beach and Oh, I'm going to, uh, you were back at it. And, and because I think you had that uh, ability to see things in a, in a way that very uncommon to most business books that are out there. And you use the word acumen. And that's a knowledge word. Uh, that's that's a learning word. That's a that's a performance word. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, how did you choose that particular word? Because it's savvy, I, I get, but acumen. I, I can't take credit for that. That was there were other people that came before who were writing in that space on that they were calling business acumen, but they were doing it from a completely different yeah. perspective. They were doing it from the point of view, well, if I show you, if we have this really thin little book that shows you a few principles of finance and a few things about how to interpret financial statements, that's going to boost your business acumen. Yeah. And I'm thinking, that's that doesn't make sense. So I tried to build on the, the direction that was being taken by these other authors, but take it in a different direction by building on pragmatism and knowledge and, and experiential learning or uh, action learning. That's actually, a, uh, I think, uh, <laughs> my yet-to-be-started book that you guys want to make me write. <laughs> we're uh, going to have you on a recording, and we're going to put it out to the world, Fred. This <laughs> is the announcement of Fred starting his book. <laughs> go, go ahead. Sorry to be rude. And something that Steve just said um, and your comment about it being a cap on a capstone, uh, you know, I, I think uh, for all of us, and uh, certainly for my yet-to-be-started book, um, it's a way of capturing the gain of thinking in some way. You know, like like we've been saying, you know, we're men of ideas, but just sort of floating along, along flitting from idea to idea. Yeah, like fireflies. You know, I, got, I caught one. <laughs> I got it in a jar. It can end up just being a aimless wander. But, yeah, you know, yeah. ultimately, I think to have some feeling of achievement and, and lots of other, you know, intrinsic motivations, you want to be able to sort of capture the game. You know, I put all this thinking into this. I want to get it into a book you know, where, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I even, you know, no matter what happens after the book's been published, it's published, it's done. You know, you've captured that gain. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's the, the last answer you're ever going to come up with, but, you know, you can build on it, you know, whereas uh, I think building on shifting sands of changing minds uh, can end up just, you know, being like building in quicksand, where I think the, the book is a more concrete capturing of the gain. So That's I, well put. I, I have to tell you, because I'm running out of time here, but I, I have to throw my my experience in very quickly. Uh, now that there's a, a majority of the work that I put together with Peter's work called uh, um, Practice as a Way of Being, I've been going back through and actually reading what I wrote in a different way. Before I was reading it for uh, copy editing and, and all of that. And, and this time I just said, I think I'll spend about 20 minutes and read the first couple of conjectures about practice. And I read what I wrote and I said, that is me. That's, that's my way of thinking. <laughs> and I was like, wow, 
it felt good to see what I wrote. And in fact, Steve, that that's how you feel too. Yeah, I uh, think so. It, it's a good. It's a. It's gratifying in two ways. One, you know, it, it it's pretty pretty good pretty good language and uh, so forth. But the other part is that you get a feeling if anyone read this right now and then read Peter's stuff and then set their mind in a different direction, even a little bit, then I'm still teaching. So when I was writing it, I was writing as teaching. You, Steve, wrote, I think, in a way of teaching with David, who is a fine teacher as well as a corporate CEO and all kinds of other amazing things. But you had that same feeling that I, I do, that if, if someone else were to read this now, that might make a difference. And why we've been picking on you, Fred, is we know you're writing, we know you're thinking, is that we want, we want some people to be laying eyes on, on your sentences and going, oh, oh, that's new, that's different, that makes sense, that closes some uh, gaps for me. And, and we'd all three be walking into a bar five years from now. <laughs> Hopefully I won't be using a walker because I'll be in my 80s and we'll have, and we'll have that feeling. Hey, look what we put out there. And was, whosoever's book sold more copies has to buy the beer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you guys better start saving up. <laughs> but, uh, well, I'm going to uh, stop the recorded part of this conversation in part because my friend Steve Cavallari here, uh, and I am a UConn graduate too, so I should be just as interested in getting to see uh, how, the, how these, uh, these basketball games are going to go. Tonight. Big East, Big East tournament, Big East tournament. And, uh, and so you've been listening to <laughs> Fred Reed, Dave Fearon, Steve Cavallari, the three men who walked into a bar, the three amigos. There we are. Thanks guys. It was, this has been really very generous of you to do this. Oh, you're welcome. Welcome Dave. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcasts page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon.